The following was recorded at the 2014 Reformed Forum Theology Conference, held October 10th through 12th, 2014, at Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. For more information, please visit reformedforum.org. Uh, I am going to try to stay on the theme of the conference, which was on the sons of God. And so I'm going to teach uh, this morning for around 45 minutes or so on Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. I'm not going to talk about everything by any stretch, but I'd like you to look at that text. We're going to read it, then pray, and then I'll make some uh, comments that are constrained by the time that we have together. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless our time together this morning in Sunday school and that you would give us understanding of your word that we would lay hold of Jesus Christ and be built up in him strengthened according to his power, to his spirit and his word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the book of Hebrews as a whole was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were tempted with one basic temptation, and it was to revert to the old covenant under Moses. It was to revert to the visible tangible forms of the Old Covenant theocracy. And for that reason, the book of Hebrews, more than any other book in the New Testament, is designed to both distinguish and relate Old and New Testaments, Old and New Covenants. First Covenant under Moses, New Covenant under Christ, one covenantal household, two covenantal administrations. And um, if I were to try to give you a kind of overview of the central theological message of the book of Hebrews, it is Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when you think about what the book of Hebrews tells you, you can think of it this way. You can think of the Old Testament from Genesis three fifteen forward as casting the shadow of Jesus Christ. And you can think of it this way. I think someone used this illustration. It might have been Camden, but I'm not sure. Uh, during the conference, a similar illustration. I want you to picture the sun is setting behind my back, and I'm standing several hundred feet away from you. And you've seen me enough to know my uh, shape, and you can tell by the way I walk, who I am, and so on. And as I'm standing several hundred feet away from you with the sun behind my back, it will cast a shadow in front of me. And as you look at me, you're not going to be able to see all of the details of who I am. 
You might not be able to see the scar on my cheek or the gap in my teeth, my glasses, my beautiful hair. You might not be able to see those things, but you can see the fundamental contours of who I am. You can recognize me, but you recognize me at a distance. There's a shadowy dimension to the way I'm presented to you. The book of Hebrews presents Jesus Christ as the one who is walking toward his people through and in shadows that both veil him in certain ways but reveal him. And Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, tells us that now Christ has burst through the shadows and we see the radiance of his glory and the splendor of his person. So that the movement from the old to the new is a movement from promise to fulfillment, from shadow to substance, and Christ is the central concern of both. And so the Hebrew Christians to whom... uh, this Jewish Christians to whom this letter is addressed have this great temptation to revert back to the shadows. And the author of Hebrews is wanting to say, you must not look back to the shadows, but look to the radiant glory and substance in Christ. Now, the way this begins in verses 1 and 2, the way this prologue begins is with a basic comparison and contrast between the Old Covenant prophets and the Son. And notice the way this is, uh, is, is presented. In the past, at various times and in various ways, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken in a son. Why begin that way? Why does the prologue to the book of Hebrews begin with a comparison and contrast from the lesser prophets to the greater son? What would Jewish Christians, tempted to revert to the old covenant ceremonies and shadows and institutions of the old covenant, what would they be tempted to say to someone who told them to hear a new word? What would they say? They would say, we have Moses. Who are you? Right? We have Moses. And the author of Hebrews wants to begin by hooking those recipients of this word of exhortation and call them to now hear what God has spoken once for all in a son who is going to be construed and presented as greater than the prophets. The fundamental contrast is between the prophets and a son. But Now, I want you to recognize why the Jewish Christians would have such an elevated view of the prophets. Think about this. In the Old Testament... When you think, for instance, of Moses, you think of the prophet par excellence of the Old Testament. If you think of the pinnacles of Old Testament prophets, Moses is at the top. He is the one after whom all of the prophets are patterned. 
in terms of an historical movement. He's a prototypical prophet. And how does the Lord talk to Moses when he's calling Moses to speak to Pharaoh? In Exodus 4, 15 through 16, the Lord says, I want you to go talk to Pharaoh. And Moses is saying, I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't speak well. I don't think I want to do that. He says, okay, I will let Aaron speak. And here's how it's going to work. I am going to be with your mouth, your mouth. I am going to be with Aaron's mouth, and I will be with your mouth, and you and Aaron will be to Pharaoh as God. But why? Because the Lord is with the mouth of the prophet, and the prophet speaks with the authority of God himself. Right? Or you think of it this way, in Jeremiah 1, 5. And nine, when Jeremiah is called to be a prophet, what do you get? You get this, Jeremiah 1, 9. The Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So when Jeremiah speaks, what does he say? Thus thinks Jeremiah, Thus saith the Lord, right? Because the words of God have been placed in his mouth and put on his pen so that as he speaks and writes, he carries the authority of God. He speaks and that is the voice of God. This is by the superintending power of the Spirit. So that the prophets are exalted to an incredibly high place in terms of the Old Testament scriptures. Though they are human, though they are sinful, and though in themselves they are fallible, there is a superintending sovereign work of the Spirit by which the Lord places His words in their mouths. So here's the question. Think of it now. If God has spoken in such definitive and authoritative ways and has shown the people of God his character, his promises, and his glory, has supplied redemption through types and sacrifices, why are you to hear another word? Why? What's the logic of it? Why are you supposed to hear another word? Well, notice that the contrast in 1 and 2 is between something formerly spoken versus something spoken in these last days. The last days in Scripture are the entire time between the first and second advent of Jesus Christ. The first coming of Jesus in death, Resurrection, the second coming of Jesus in glory. All of the period in between those days, between those events, will be the last days. And so, when the last days are inaugurated, when Christ comes in his death and resurrection, what does that do? That means you have been hastened and pushed forward toward the last day. Hebrews 10.24, the last day will end the last days. And so, what does this do? This increases the urgency to listen. 
If the last days have arrived, that means the last day is imminent. And you are to recognize there's an intensification, an escalation of importance to hear. Because on the last day, the Lord will raise the righteous and bring them into his presence. He will raise the wicked and banish them from his presence in hell. Or his presence will be with them only in wrath and curse in hell. So, if these last days have been inaugurated with the coming of the Son, here's the question. Why do I hear the Son? Why listen? Why listen to what God has spoken in a son and in those apostles whom he has sent and superintended their words that they speak to us? Why? Well, notice this. Here's what's so interesting. Beginning in verse, uh, at the second portion of verse 2, notice what starts to happen. The author of Hebrews, beginning in 1-2-B, the, the second part of verse 2, He tells us who this son is. So beginning in verse 2 with that relative clause, who, he says, now I'm going to tell you why you should hear this son. Why you should listen to this son. And the first thing he says is that you should listen to this son, to the son of God, because he is... He has been appointed the heir of all things, through whom also God created the world. See, contrary to the prophets of the Old Testament, the Son of God is both the originator of all things and the heir of all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Alpha Creator, through whom the worlds were made. He is the Omega Inheritor. All things are to Him. All things have been made for Him, as Paul says in Colossians 1.16. So if all things are through the Son of God, and all things are to the Son of God, He then becomes both the Creator of the Prophets, and the one about whom they spoke as the heir of all things. He surpasses the prophets in the eternal dignity of his person. So, so, so when you're thinking along these lines, why should I hear the Son? He's the Alpha and the Omega, and think of it this way, he's the uh, inaugurator of the last days. So so he's the true center point of history. All of history turns on his humiliation and his exaltation. So you could think of it this way. Why should I listen to the Son? Well, I should listen to the Son because he is the Alpha and Omega and the center of all things. Vastly surpassing the prophets in terms of his preeminence and his importance. Whether we think of the beginning, the middle, or the end of history, the Son is central. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? Already, what has the author of Hebrews done? 
He has taken the elevated prophets and he has subordinated them forever to the Alpha and Omega, the uncreated Son of God. And this is, this is moving, then, the Jewish Christians who hear this to what? To worship. <laughs> to bow before the Lord and worship. Now, here's something that you have to think about. This, this, is, this is one of those things that you have to kind of think about it for a little bit before it starts to sink in. If the author of Hebrews is developing this argument about the way the Son fulfills and surpasses the prophets, and he's the Alpha and the Omega, what sense does 3a make, the first part of verse 3? What sense does that make? 3a, look, look at it. He is the brightness of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. What is the pattern of reasoning here? Why does the author of Hebrews speak this way? What bearing does the glory of the sun, the radiance of the glory of the sun, what bearing does that have on the way he surpasses the prophets of the Old Covenant? Well, this is subtle. This is a little subtle. You've got you've to think about it for a bit. It's not just right on the surface of the text, but it's there. Think about this. When the Lord called Moses up to Mount Sinai, and and this is recorded in um, Deuteronomy, uh, portions of Deuteronomy, but Exodus 34 in particular. Do you remember what happened? The Lord summoned Moses and only Moses into his presence on Mount Sinai. Israel, as we talked about yesterday, is down at the bottom of the mountain worshiping idols. This is a different story. Moses is called up. Nothing unclean can touch the mountain or it dies, but Moses... It's brought up, and the Lord reveals himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord your God, who is uh, uh, slow to anger and full of mercy, he showed his glory and the hindquarters of that glory to Moses as he shielded him in the cleft of the rock. He gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments. He showed Moses the upper register glory of the heavenly tabernacle. In Exodus twenty five forty, that's that's to be um, the the pattern after which the earthly tabernacle is constructed. And he spoke to Moses and revealed himself to Moses in his glory. When Moses left the presence of God and descended from Mount Sinai, listen to the language. He had entered up into a realm, remember, that was was uh, veiled in thick clouds and flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and smoke. And as he descended from that awe-inspiring realm where the Lord met with him, we read this, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of the testimony in his hand. And as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Moses' countenance was transformed as he bore in it a creaturely derived form of the glory of God. And Israel saw Moses and this glory did what in their estimate? 
it authenticated Moses as a prophet. He has the Ten Commandments etched, as it were, by the finger of God on his, uh, in, in his person. He's holding those tablets. And his face bears the glory of the God who has revealed himself to Moses. And do you remember what Israel did when they saw him? This is like a reenactment of Genesis 3.8 with Adam and Eve. The Lord comes in the thunder of judgment. What do they do? They take off Israel. It's afraid. They're running from Moses. They're afraid of him. Why? Because he bears the glory of the Lord, and that glory exposes sin, right? The Lord told Moses, you can't see my face and bear my glory and live, right? So he, he, he covers him in the cleft of the rock as he passes by. Now, what does this mean, though? Here's what it means. At, at, at least at this level. Moses was authenticated as a prophet by the luminosity and glory of his countenance. Hmm? Having been taken up into the heavenly council, his appearance was transformed into a dazzling display of splendor and light that replicated in a creaturely form the unfading glory of the Lord. But the Apostle Paul notes something. How does Paul, in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 18, how does he characterize the glory of Moses' face? It was fading. It was fading. No sooner did the Lord appear to Moses, and Moses bear that glory in his person, then that glory began to fade, and Moses placed a veil over his face to hide the fact that that glory was departing. No sooner was it present on Moses than it began to fade away. What does that tell you? It tells you that he is not the original and full possessor of the divine glory. Moses is only a type. Moses is only a shadow. Moses bears the glory of God in a derived and creaturely and fading way. But what about the Son of God? How much glory does he possess? He is the, what, effulgence of the glory of God. He is the one in whom that glory is maximal and eternal. Uh, Isaiah 42.1, I hope I'm right on that. I don't have it in my notes. Isaiah 42.1, what does the Lord say? He says, I am the Lord God, and I will share my glory with no one. Well, if the sun is the brightness and fullness of that glory, who is he? He is God the Son. He is God the Son. And if the Lord is one, and if he will share his glory with no other, 
what is deeply ingrained into the consciousness of every Old Testament saint from Deuteronomy 6.4 forward? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. He will share his glory with no other. If the Son is the radiance of that glory, Paul is saying, hear, new Israel. The Lord your God has spoken in a son who is God. It's astounding, isn't it? So, so what, what, what is the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying something along these lines. He's saying that the Son of God intrinsically and eternally possesses the glory that Moses bore in a creaturely way. That Moses' glory, if you could think of it this way, is actually something derived from the glory of the Son, the eternal Son. Moses is an earthly image in his fading glory of the unfading glory of the eternal Son of God. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And, and so, how do, you, how do you relate Moses to the Son? Moses is a as a sinful, creaturely fading form of the abiding and uncreated glory of the eternal Son of God. That is who Moses is. Now, you can get this in, in different ways, that this glory, this, this luminous glory authenticates prophets. Let me give you an example of how this works from a different text of Scripture. But look at uh, Matthew 17, 1 through 5. Or 1 through 10. I think someone else talked about this, uh, just alluded to it at the conference. I'm not going to read it because I am running out of time. Uh, Do do we stop at 11.45? May I go till noon? Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm not going to read it then. Let me just describe it to you. You can have it right there in front of you. When um, uh, This is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and when the... um, the Lord takes uh, the disciples, his disciples with him, onto the mountain. There are two people who join him. Moses and Elijah. Peter, whose instincts are not always the best, at least initially. He needs time to think. He's not a good instinctive thinker. Peter says, hey Lord, why don't I build three shelters? What is that doing? That's equalizing, right? Let me equalize these three prophets. That's kind of what's going on, even though Peter doesn't say that explicitly. And before he can say anything, a light descends and transfigures the Son of God so that he is, in his appearance, becomes bright as the sun. And the disciples are overwhelmed by the effulgence of that glory. And when that light leaves... Only Jesus remains. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And you hear a voice from heaven say what? This is my son. What? Listen to him. That glorious transformation of his countenance in his earthly ministry is a manifestation of that eternal glory he has as the eternal Son, and he is therefore one greater than Moses, right? One greater than Moses has come. 
one greater than Elijah has come. He is authenticated and validated through this luminous transformation on the Mount of Transfiguration as the Son whom you must hear. And it's a preview, by the way, it's a preview of the radical, glorious transformation that he experiences when he is raised and enters into heaven. I don't have time for it this morning, but just earmark this one. John 1, when John turns to see the Son of God as he has ascended into glory, and as he speaks to him, what does he see? I won't give you the whole thing, but he sees someone whose um, who's, um, feet are like burnished brass, whose voice is like the sound of many rushing waters, whose hair and, and eyes are as white as snow, and a two-edged sword comes from his mouth, and um, he is, it's, it's, a, it's just an amazing, a two-edged sword is Revelation 19, but it's just an amazing uh, display of the fullness of his glory. And what does this son, Jesus, the apocalypse of Jesus, what does he say? Write these things down. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. I was alive. I was dead. Now I'm alive. Write these things. Well, let me, let me say this. I, I'm aware of time. We need to, we need to, to, to come uh, to a bit of a close. But I, w- I want to ask you this. In terms of this text, in terms of uh, Hebrews 1, why are you to listen to the Son? You're listening to the Son because he is God. You're to listen to him because he is the uncreated effulgence of God's glory. He is the, character, the uh, uh, imprint, the imprint of his substance. He is God, the Son. But also, note this in terms of Hebrews 1.3. Look, look down at Hebrews 1.3. After he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. You are to listen to and heed the word of this Son, not only because he is God, the archetype after which Moses is patterned. But he is your high priest and savior as well. He who provided purification for sins by his life and substitutionary death on the cross. He who bore the fullness of the wrath of God so that he put away sin forever by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9.26. The one who did that is seated at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for you and from which place he can save you to the uttermost. From which place he can save you to the uttermost. You see, this son, and this coheres with with what, uh, I shouldn't call him Dr. Busey, but I'm going to, uh, what Pastor Busey said earlier this morning, you should listen to the Son for, at minimum, these two reasons. Number one, the Son's word and the Son's work. One, two, and one, three. Hebrews one. Brings you to glory. His work and his word brings you to glory. The family resemblance that was talked about earlier today and in the breakout session yesterday. See, if you look at Hebrews, um, I'll, just, I'll just allude to it, Hebrews 1, 9, and 10, 
it is fitting that in bringing many sons to glory, he made their Savior perfect through suffering. You are being brought to glory, please hear this, right now. You're in the process of being drawn into glory in terms of your union with Christ. He is bringing you to glory now. And he will bring you to glory on the last day. He will bring you to glory when he raises you from the dead and he unveils the rest, the Sabbath rest that awaits the church, Hebrews 4, 10, 11. And he brings you to a place of full glory that he shares with you, he confers upon you as crucified and raised. He's bringing you to glory. That's why you listen to him. Only he does by his word and spirit. Secondly, secondly, the son's word is redemptive. It's a a related point, but his word is redemptive. You are not learning theology, learning the Bible, so you can be smart or sound smart or however it it would be. Not just so you can be informed. Now, you want to be informed and you want to learn the Bible, but you are being given the word of God to be transformed, to be redeemed. The word of God redeems. Remember in John 6, 63, when the disciples came to Jesus and, um, and, and they, were, they were asking him to whom they should go, and they said, we can't go to anyone else. And what did Jesus say to them? They said, Jesus, we can't go to anyone else because only you have what? The words of life. And Jesus said, my words, my words are spirit and they are life. The word of the Lord leads you to the Lord of the word. Right? The word of the Lord leads you to the Lord of the word and the Lord by his word and spirit, is bringing you to glory and redeeming you and renewing you and raising you up day by day. Why, then, should you listen to the Son? You have nowhere else you can go. Nowhere else you can go. You can't go anywhere else and find hope or life or glory or righteousness or rest. And so, the author of Hebrews is telling us why it is so critical that we look to the Son so that we as sons, we as children, might bear his likeness and be brought to glory. Um, Do we do questions or just... Let's close in prayer. Let's close in prayer. And, and, and I, don't, I don't want to keep people. If the, if, if, uh, you just call the shot. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We pray that you would bless us and encourage us in Christ, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would teach us to hear the word of the Son and look to his work, which is revealed in that word, that we might be brought to glory and rest in him. Nourish us and strengthen us in this wilderness Cause us to find mercy and grace to assist us in our time of need and bless us for the sake of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.